Welcome to Physicians Off the Beaten Path, a podcast where we've set out to bust the myth that physicians can't venture outside the traditional clinical or research career path. My name's Shad, I'm an MD and Harvard MBA, interested in healthcare investing and innovation. And my name is Alex, I'm an MD finishing up an MBA at HBS, a master's at Stanford and a PhD at Oxford, and I'm interested in healthcare investing and entrepreneurship. Our guest today is Andre Ostrovsky. He's managing partner at Social Innovation Ventures, where he invests in transformative founders to accelerate equity, advises nonprofits to scale impact, invests in affordable and supportive housing, invests in and celebrates stellar artists and their diversity, and conducts rigorous academic research to drive informed investments and advocacy. Andre was the CMO of the US Medicaid program, where he helped Medicaid develop its opioid strategy, planned the foundation for becoming a learning organization and moved towards data-driven policymaking. Also advocated for accurate, accountable, and ethical dissemination of information from the government to the public. Andre holds an MD from Boston University School of Medicine, an undergraduate degrees in chemistry and psychology, graduating magna cum laude from Boston University, and is a member of Phi Beta Kappa. Andre completed his pediatrics residency training in the Boston Combined Residency Program at Boston Medical Center and Boston Children's Hospital, where he was a clinical instructor at Harvard Medical School. Andre, thank you so much for joining us and welcome to Physicians Off the Beaten Path. Thanks for having me. Yeah, this is a conversation that Alex and I have looked forward for a very long time, and we're thankful that you took the time to join us today. Reading about, just researching your life and your background during this episode has been really heartwarming. Uh, You know, both Alex and I have very international stories, similar to many of our guests. You know, we've previously spoken about something called the immigrant mentality, you know, to work hard and to strive to be the best version of yourself. And as I understand, Andre, you know, when your family came to the U.S., you lived in public housing in West Baltimore for several years. And you've said that that experience has impacted the way you live your life and how you see healthcare and pretty much every facet of your life. So to put things into perspective for our audience, can you talk to us a little bit about your childhood, you know, your road towards medical school and and how those early experiences impacted your journey off the beaten path? Sure. Yeah. Thanks for having me. Uh, came over in 89 when I was five years old. We came from Odessa, Ukraine, and landed in Baltimore. Uh, as you mentioned, West Baltimore. Uh, we, my family in Ukraine had, uh, it was a, you know, we were a pretty affluent family and went from that to having uh, no resources at all. I think my family had $100, 100 US dollars at that point in time. And, uh, other than some um, salami that I had smuggled over into Italy on our course to to the states, we really had nothing else besides a suitcase each and that and that cash. Uh, my parents went to work as a cab driver for my dad and my mom working at Dominic's Pizzeria in Baltimore, where I helped her fold some pizza boxes, which is quite quite the quite the experience for a little little hands. Um, and we grew up uh, fortunately benefiting from the safety net programs that were available to us. We had uh, you know, Medicaid for healthcare. We had a supportive uh, housing that was financially assisted. And after a couple of years of doing that, my parents were able to get on, uh, get 
get uh, more self-sustaining and in that springboard of supported housing uh, and not having to worry about paying for medical bills um, and getting preventive care for their kid. And uh, that enabled us to get out of that environment and to self-sustain. My experience growing up with friends who are also in that environment, but that uh, uh, were people of color, I observed, you know, as I stayed in touch with them uh, through our elementary, middle and high school years, their lives took very different trajectories. And uh, the most almost certain reason for that was the uh, institutional barriers to to them getting out um, and uh, or not getting out and, and me being able to get out. Uh, and, and that shaped my perspective on a lot of things and recognizing the privileges that I've had. Um, and also uh, that's influenced me trying to initially as a clinician address those disparities, but then I learned as uh, the two of you already know and that I suspect the listeners will figure out that the N of one approach is never gets at the systemness uh, issues. And it's nice. It's a good little mitzvah. You know, you come in, you doctor, you feel good, but it's typically, unless you're hyper, hyper specialized, it's a, it's a commoditized service and uh, doctoring is. Um, whereas working in policy or building a company um, uh, or investing, I think those are areas where the root causes of those systemic issues that led me to uh, thrive in my um friends who are people of color to uh, not thrive or be less likely to thrive. Um, I think that's where a lot of really interesting opportunity is. And so that uh, has shaped my worldview on social cohesiveness and closing gaps, not just healthcare gaps. It's just, that's kind of all I really know, but economic gaps. I'm um, grateful for, for that experience and also um, uh, bothered by it pretty on a pretty regular basis. And uh, it's, it's that frustration that persists that allows me to, you know, do the next the next big thing and make the next big investment. Yeah, thank you, Andre. That's incredibly insightful. And we've talked to a lot of uh, clinicians uh, here on the podcast who've mentioned this concept of depth of impact versus breadth of impact. You know, I always say, and I'll say it during every episode, that I think you know being a clinician is a noble and full time job, but uh, you are somewhat limited in the breadth of impact that you can have and. And if you sort of venture out into entrepreneurship or policy or whatever it is, I think there's a lot of interesting things to be done. And then Alex always says that a lot of amazing innovations happen in the intersection of different disciplines, whether it's clinical medicine, entrepreneurship, or, you know, whatever iteration you want to consider. So it definitely resonates with us. And one other thing that I wanted to point out is just hearing your answer was, was inspiring because as someone you know, you grew up in a relatively sort of vulnerable condition in West Baltimore. It takes a lot of self-awareness to realize that you personally have had certain privileges that allowed you to, you know, quote unquote, get out of your situation, you know, on top of all of the hard work and all of that other stuff mixed in. And I always say that, you know, we're privileged in some ways, but not privileged in other ways. And everyone is an amalgamation of those two different dualities. It's not just one monolith. Uh, and I think that's important to sort of consider when we're screaming at each other uh, in the current sort of political atmosphere of, hey, you're privileged or you're not privileged. So really, really appreciate that nuance there. Uh, again, I'm thinking back to all of the amazing stories I read 
about your career while researching for this episode. And in a career of really inspiring stories, one that particularly struck out to me happened a couple of years ago, I believe, when you were running a series of methadone clinics. Some of the patients were, as I understand it, non-compliant with attending group therapy. And given that many of them were homeless, and you had actually decided to spend a 24-hour period in a homeless shelter to try and understand you know, some of the needs of those populations you were serving. Now, at a fundamental level, that's truly doing your research to understand who you're serving, which is in some sense a generalizable insight. You can sort of take that nugget and apply it in any aspect of your life, whether personal or professional. So I'd love to know, you know what you learned from that particular experience and, and how those lessons have carried over to your aspects you know, in other aspects of your life. That experience highlights the importance of any manager or leader uh, in utilizing the appropriate change management tools at the right, at the appropriate time. Um, there, when I was running that company, um, there was a lot of change that needed to happen. And we, we, uh, utilize lean approaches for, for certain aspects of the change management. Um, uh, and to some extent, a little bit of like uh, lean startup methods. That was an example though, of just a bread and butter design, you know, human centered design. And, and there's a lot of principles as well as tools within human centered design. Um, the, the, the most important one being the need to be able to empathize with the end user for whom you're designing an experience and um, what I observed, what my team observed was we had a problem. It was just a, a business problem, it was a, a revenue problem, right? Our most lucrative um, line of business, which is group therapy, was uh, really underperforming. And also group therapy uh, was a a pretty valuable aspect of the care model from a clinical outcomes perspective. And just to be clear, like just giving methadone alone is like singularly the most valuable aspect of treating severe opioid use disorder. But therapy is, is an important part and group therapy is, uh, can be, can work really well for folks. So there's clinical appropriateness alignment with a financial model. And that's what prompted a root cause analysis to try to identify why is it that, based on our assumptions and projections, group therapy was, you know, from a financial perspective, underperforming or from a clinical perspective, um, underattended. And uh, interviewed uh, a bunch of our staff and some of the patients and learned that there was probably an issue around housing and security, but we couldn't have total system knowledge. We couldn't really characterize the full journey of an individual. And you, you need that level of detail and depth in order to um, innovate and improve. And so, uh, you know, I came into an organization where we didn't have like a tiger team of designers. We didn't have money for external consultants. It was like, it was me. I was the one person that in the organization knew anything about human-centered design. So uh, it, was a, it was a great opportunity to go in and apply those uh, techniques and essentially, um, you know, of the many techniques within human-centered design, um, ob observational uh, uh, learning and um, interviews and, and like, uh, in-depth in shadowing, those techniques uh, is, are all the techniques uh, I ended up applying. And uh, 
it opened my eyes to just the logistics barriers uh, for about a third of our patients, whereby they had to choose, are they going to sleep somewhere that was not outdoors and on concrete? Or are they going to um, get methadone? And they could, they, they had essentially were deferring to the option of they could just buy inexpensive heroin on the street and get shelter as opposed to miss the opportunity for shelter and get methadone. Uh, whether it's heroin or methadone, they wouldn't have withdrawal uh, symptoms, which is the thing that they were really anxious about. Um, obviously, methadone, uh, when administered in an opioid treatment program, is way better for the patient, lower risk of overdose. Well, you're not going to overdose because it'll be in a, in a, a clinically controlled environment. Um, you don't get the risk of fentanyl, carfentanyl, and the heroin supply, the hep C, HIV risk. Obviously, like all of the all of the, the listeners will probably be familiar with that. Um, it's just a much better actual clinical intervention. And yet the patients needed somewhere to sleep. And 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 I, I felt that. Like they it was cold outside and it um it wasn't the safest environment and uh, people were willing to wait in line for an entire day just so they can get a bed. So we took some of those learnings and other learnings as well, brought them back to our leadership team, and most importantly, the frontline staff that led the group sessions and together thought through, okay, how might we accommodate this experience for the patient that meets their needs and in doing so increases participation in group therapy. And there's essentially... Uh, retiming when group therapy happened, not making it in the afternoon hours, like 2 or 3 p.m., front-loading in the morning early so that folks could get dosed, get group therapy, and still have time to get in line. And then also we implemented some housing interventions. We actually had three buildings that we bought to house people, and it wasn't a lot. We needed way more buildings, but our core business obviously wasn't like real estate. So lot, lots of learning from that. And that was probably the biggest, single biggest inflection point in the revenue trajectory of the company because group therapy attendance ended up skyrocketing. And it looked like there was some meaningful clinical benefit because the adherence to actually dosing methadone increased substantially as well. Um, so not only did we improve group therapy, but we improved the singular most important intervention, which is get getting medication-based treatment. And that... Bread and butter, human centered design uh, achieved that. Yeah, no, thank you, Andrea. And I love that sort of point about how it actually had an impact on metrics that you know different stakeholders actually care about. Because I can imagine, you know, your cynical person saying like, "Oh, like what would that do?" Like, you know, spending twenty four hours in a homeless shelter. But I think that misses the point. I think without being, and again, there's multiple ways you can sort of see things from different people's perspective, but this is just one way to do it. But without being in that homeless shelter or whatever it is, you know, you only tend to see things from either the clinician's perspective or from the outsider's perspective. And it seems on its face irrational why people aren't attending, you know, their appointments. Like, why wouldn't they attend their appointments? I'm trying to help them. But when you sort of entrench yourself into their sort of workflow, the real life workflow, you realize that people make decisions for certain reasons and they're making trade-offs, you know, constantly. So if nothing else, I think it really helps understand why people are living and like the way they are. 
and, and, and sort of this point about learning about the end consumer, while we we're building our company, Alex and I, we not only spoke with, you know, physicians, insurers, innovators, but also patients along the way, because, you know, we fundamentally believe that not only is it the right thing to do, A, because they're your end consumer, but B, I suspect it's financially the savvy thing to do as well, because uh, you're going to just create a better product. Um, so it's just, it's something to keep in mind for our audience as they move forward in their journey. You know, the last question I had before I hand it over to Alex is about Medicaid. As we all know, you are the CMO at, at Medicaid, and it's now the largest, I believe, single payer of healthcare in the U.S. Uh, about 75 million Americans are on Medicaid post-ACA, uh, and more than $600 billion is spent on the program annually in the fight to improve health for some of the nation's most vulnerable patient populations. However, you know, many experts suggest that the program is in need of innovation and rapid change. And as someone who worked with the program for a while and was a key player in some of the most innovative work coming out of the program, I'm curious what you think are, are the current challenges it needs to overcome over the next decade. And then how can physicians, maybe some in our audience, how can they, you know, be a part of that solution? Oh boy. Um, I think it's important for everyone to recognize the nature of the Medicaid program as opposed to, let's say, the Medicare program, whereby Medicare predominantly 65 and older with a few other um, uh, qualifying criteria. Uh, Medicaid is folks that are uh, in, in poverty uh, with uh, also some folks with, with disabilities, but it's really mostly folks in poverty. Um, the Medicare program is centralized, uh, top-down, federal government dic dictates how it works, and then that uh, is applied essentially uh, uniformly across the U.S. The Medicaid program is a state-driven program whereby the states have parameters of how they can operate their program, but it is the states that dictate exactly uh, which beneficiaries get coverage, what kind of coverage they, they get, the services they get, and how much those services are, are paid for. And then any innovations that happen, the states will then ask the feds for permission to approve that change, or it could be an innovation, it could just be, a, in some cases, a pernicious uh, attempt to reduce benefits for, for people. Um, and so within that context, innovation is an interesting con construct to think about because it's, it, it's really a state-driven phenomenon. And there are absolutely ways that innovation can happen and happen better at the state level. Um, there's also ways that innovation can and should be happening at the federal level within the Center for Medicaid and CHIP Services. But the way that happens is, is going to be very different. Uh, at CMCS at the national level, it, it's really about um, signaling to states what the rece what receptivity there is for new innovations. For example, like right now, the big activity that's happening is um, maternal and perinatal health coverage, especially out to 12 months um, uh, after delivery uh, for uh, mom and baby, whereas that kind of coverage was much more limited in the past. There's uh, policy innovation and gaining some traction around 
extending Medicaid eligibility for people still in the criminal justice system before they get out, whereas like traditionally that Medicaid eligibility was not available to them. Um, and then there's also innovations around states um, at their discretion can extend um, eligibility for uh, um, undocumented immigrants. Again, that's not the standard within the Medicaid program, but they can apply for waivers and, 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 and um, innovate that way. And so the feds can suggest, hey, here's our openness to doing things and issue sub-regulatory guidance like uh, CMCS informational bulletins, CIBs or SIBs or state health officials, SHOs or SHOs. But it's really the states that will submit either an 1115 demonstration or a 1915 waiver or a state plan amendment asking, hey, we would like to do something differently. And then the feds will say yes or no. Um, to your question about physician involvement, CMCS right now only has two physicians working in it. And as you mentioned, it's, in a, you know, it's a federal state program, but essentially it's a 75 million person insurer, two physicians that are working in it, which is insane. And that's a problem. Um, now, the two physicians that happen to be there are remarkable. Um, my replacement, Dr. D.T. Malik, just like beautiful example of the type of clinician leadership we should have. Practicing physician, um, uh, worked in the private sector, came back from the private sector with those change management skills, applying it to a public health setting. Like, really nice, sweet spot. Um, there's another physician that works um, underneath of her that was leading quality work. But we need a lot more uh, clinician leaders that have experience in, uh, in management, in the private sector, uh, in um, you know, analytics, in um, you know, public health certainly would be helpful. Uh, but there, there, there are, aren't that many across CMS, there was a pretty substantial brain drain after we switched from the Obama to the Trump administration and we have not replenished. And also the way of replenishing needs to be uh, optimized as well. Um, so to summarize, there's definitely a lot of innovation opportunity. I would start at the state level. Um, that's where the real opportunity lies. And um, there's opportunity at the federal level, certainly, but for them, it's really just kind of setting the guardrails of innovation. It's the states that are going to do the innovating or potentially the bad things. <laughs> it depends on the state. Yeah, no, that's incredibly helpful, Andrea. I guess for our audience members, you can look at it two ways, right? Some people will look at the fact that there's only two physicians and notice an opportunity to get involved. And other people will say, oh, there's only two physicians. There must not be any role for physicians in a group such as this. Obviously, I think the approach to take is the former, where you see that there's a paucity of, and Alex and I talk about this a lot, you know, why is it fundamentally important that physicians entrench themselves in non-clinical, you know, matters? Because hopefully we have a better sense than non-clinicians what patients are going through. And if you can bring that perspective into different aspects of healthcare in the non-clinical setting, I think it's just better for everyone. Yeah, I, I think I do. I, I do want to clarify one point. I think that uh, as a specialist, whether it's being a physician or, or some other specialist um, coming into a policy setting, 
it, or, or even in a, in a private setting, going in, going into a, a company, um, being a physician, especially a practicing physician, absolutely allows for shortening the lead time to value discovery because you have already the experience that in certain situations can represent generalities or truth applicable to broader populations. That can also introduce a bias that actually uh, limits the generalizability of a policy or some innovation or product. And it's important to have a kind of a beginner's eye on a problem and know when can I, as a clinician, apply my clinical expertise to the problem? Um, and also, is my clinical expertise actually creating um, tunnel vision? And should I apply broader principles of human-centered design and ask open-ended questions? And the thing is, if you can do that, then the open-ended questions you ask are going to be much more informed questions. So that's something to keep in mind. And, and also, I, th I think besides asking better questions, as long as you remember to stay open-minded and um, discovering value, the other enormous, I think, bigger value of clinicians, whether it's policy or uh, in, in, in a company setting, is being able to productize evidence. Taking a, a specialty society guideline and then... Uh, translating that into a product or translating that into a clinical experience or translating that into a policy uh, structure. That, I think, is the most unique, high value, highest value add that a clinician can bring um, because we're, that's kind of all we know how to do is like we learn faster than most other people. We generally can work harder than most other people and we will be the best at taking, whether it's a paper, you know, peer review paper or uh, some kind of clinical guideline and interpreting what in the world does that mean? Yeah, no, that's incredibly helpful and insightful, Andre. And, and I think a generalizable point here, obviously, you know, Alex and I have spent, you know, the last two years doing this podcast because we fundamentally believe that physicians should be scoping out, you know, opportunities in multiple domains within healthcare. But I think just a generalizable point is that having outsiders and outsider perspective, as long as the perspectives are made in good faith, and sometimes it's just destructive, but, you know, as long as the perspectives are made in good faith is, is usually value additive uh, because it just lets you think of old problems in just a new way. And, and Alex and I always mention this about HBS. Just It's not just HBS. It's any sort of school where you have, you know, interesting people. But here you have, you know, doctors, lawyers, consultants, investors, all who care about healthcare coming from, you know, different domains within healthcare in a relatively small, confined area. And, and during COVID, it was very confined. So you have no choice but to just speak to one another and, and try to exchange ideas and try to move the world forward, the healthcare world forward. And that just happens when you just hear different perspectives. But this was a great conversation so far, Andre. I'll pass it on to Alex for a couple of more questions on his end. Awesome. Thank you, Shad. And thank you, Andre. Andre, I was recently reading one of your articles on the Digital Therapeutic Alliance website, and it's, it's a great segue into my next question. I think the, the article was about an analysis of uh, the recent breakthrough designations. 
for medical devices and, and digital therapeutics. And I think the kind of the results of this analysis really beautifully kind of illustrated the systematic issues that we need to solve to really unlock the potential of digital therapeutics. I think the, the results were that only around 20% of the breakthrough designation devices with an FDA market, market authorization were digital therapeutics or diagnostics. And the only reimbursed digital therapeutic of that was focused on a physical condition. And the digital therapeutics that were focused on either improving brain health or cognitive factors were not essentially reimbursed, which is like an indicator that there's a lot of systematic change that needs to happen. You know, like Shad and I are building our digital therapeutics company uh, and taking it full time after school. We're looking at therapeutic video games, and we just closed the license on a developmental disorder focused therapeutic video game. So we're really excited about that. You know, we think that there is massive potential in the uh, digital therapeutics as a modality because it it overcomes a lot of the limitations of uh, current biopharmaceuticals. And a lot of the fundamentals in the space have been de-risked by what we term as version 1.0 companies that have proven that, you know, we can get regulatory approval, we can get a clinical efficacy signal. Technically, we can create those products. But still, there seems to be that there's a lot of systematic changes that need to happen to unlock the commercial scale for digital therapeutics. So, Andre, I'd love to get your thoughts on how do you think about the inflection points that need to happen across the different healthcare stakeholders to unlock the commercial side of digital therapeutics? Is it about generating the right evidence packages or is it about taking a little bit of time to make real-world evidence available for the different stakeholders in healthcare to compel physicians to adopt and insurers to cover. Actually, I was speaking with Dennis uh, recently, and he mentioned that one of the kind of interesting ideas that you were advocating is to look at, for example, using device reimbursement codes uh, to reimburse for digital therapeutics as kind of a mid-solution until we establish reimbursement codes for digital therapeutics themselves. So you, you have a lot of experience in this space and you've been foundational to it. So would love to hear your perspective on the questions that I've mentioned. You bet. Um, the, the most concrete solution is having a legislative change that creates a benefit category for digital therapeutics. We have uh, a lot of people are involved in advocacy work to try to make that happen. There have been legislative proposals that have been put forth that are actively being discussed. Um, and eventually I think we will get there, but we can't wait for law to change given how long it takes. Um, there can be regulatory mechanisms that can allow for digital therapeutics to get reimbursed. And the reason it's so important for Medicare, uh, to establish coverage and reimbursement, um, and not, not just coding, not just creating a code, but actual coverage uh, is that um, commercial insurers and Medicaid managed care organizations, as well as state Medicaid programs, cue off of how Medicare does its coding coverage and reimbursement. And so Medicare becomes a very significant rate limiting step and probably too wonky and detailed to get into the nuances of um, how or why 
Center for Medicare is reluctant to view digital therapeutics as durable medical equipment. Um, but there are multiple ways besides that approach to get uh, coding coverage and reimbursement. And in the analysis in the paper you're describing that uh, was published with the Digital Therapeutic Alliance, um, there's uh, uh, an opportunity to take FDA breakthrough designated devices that are approved and give them transitional coverage. I think um, that would be very powerful if the TCET program were to go into effect. Um, there's uh, also an opportunity to create code modifiers so that there's population-specific uh, coding, whether it's for pediatric populations or non-Medicare-eligible uh, uh, adult uh, populations. And there's several other interesting approaches. And then there's also at the state level, I mean, state legislatures are increasingly looking at creating state laws that require their state Medicaid programs to uh, reimburse digital therapeutics. But that that's really incremental. That's one state at a time. And so it's a multi-pronged approach to getting these evidence-based modalities covered and in the hands of, of patients Um and then one thing I'll point out is there are now a good number of manufacturers that have made very significant investments in generating evidence and proving scientifically that these treatment modalities work. I mean, there's um, I have an investment in a company you guys mentioned, you know, Games. Uh, there's a, a company called Achille Interactive that's an FDA-approved digital therapeutic for treating ADHD in kids. Um, really robust evidence there. Um, the, you alluded to Dr. Wall from Stanford, who was the founder of Cognoa. That company is an uh, FDA-approved digital diagnostic for autism, which I think is probably one of the biggest innovations to close health equity gaps um, in healthcare. And I'm just so excited to see that scale up. Um, there's another FDA-approved digital therapeutic called, uh, uh, created by a company called Applied VR that applies virtual reality to treat chronic back pain. Also, multiple randomized controlled trials. I mean, these, these companies have done, in some cases, more research than um, pharmaceutical companies do for pills and molecules. Um, and yet, those pills get reimbursed immediately, uh, relatively speaking, and yet digital therapeutics have, have a pretty long lead time. I think we'll get there and um, we're getting, I think we are getting to an inflection point in the digital therapeutic space. Um, uh, it will be interesting to see in this funding environment where there's recessionary risk and the venture capital role is uh, tightened up and there's higher thresholds of traction in order to raise capital. So um, I actually suspect there's going to be some pretty interesting industry consolidation. Um, but I believe in the end, digital therapeutic, digital therapeutics as a category are going to become a mainstay of clinical practice. It's a matter of, is it going to be 10 years or um, will I do my job effectively and make it two years? Andrew, that's very interesting. Thank you for sharing your perspectives there. I do completely agree that digital therapeutics is going to become an, an established category, and I certainly hope that it's two rather than 10. <laughs> I think one of the interesting questions that we very heavily think about is 
Digital therapeutics is a new therapeutic modality. So as with all novel therapeutic modalities, especially ones that are very different from what's available, we should expect that there is a transition period until the system becomes accepting of like large scale commercialization there. And so far, you know, Shad and I have spent six to nine months, literally speaking with almost everyone in that space, like different clinicians, different insurers. And we've seen that some insurers and physicians have skepticism about the efficacy of digital therapeutics because a lot of the companies in version 1.0 took shortcuts in the design of their clinical trial and their evidence packages didn't end up being very strong to compel that adoption. So the question becomes, Andrzej, do you think that over the next one, two, three years, the products that have been approved and just entered the market recently, for example, Payer's products or Achilles product, which I think will enter kind of large-scale commercialization in the second half of this year, do you think that the fact that those products will enter the market would generate real-world evidence on efficacy, which would kind of provide the skeptics within the insurers and the physicians with the evidence that they need to prescribe? Yeah. Um, so there, there, the level of evidence in the digital therapeutic space has blossomed in a really productive way. Um, and over the past five years, there's become multiple solutions that have very robust evidence. I think the biggest gap in evidence right now isn't so much for um, efficacy of a solution, it's effic efficacy for a solution in a particular population and, and specifically Medicaid. Uh, Medicaid beneficiaries are almost universally excluded from sampling frames in, in, in doing research for um, uh, research uh, research on digital therapeutics. And that's where there's a pretty big opportunity for closing health equity gaps is, is uh, investing early and doing those kinds of studies. Um, every one of the companies I invest in, the expectation I set with the founders and with the management team is that they have to do that research. And, and not everyone can necessarily have all the research from day one, right? You have to start somewhere. So if you start in a commercial population, okay, that's fine. But there has to be a very quick follow-up to broaden that uh, research base to include other populations, namely those um, that whose care may be reimbursed by Medicaid. And that's starting to happen in a really meaningful way. I think that's the biggest constraint. Um, in terms of health plans and clinical leadership within health plans or um, uh, medical policy leadership, the, the big health plans almost universally never want to be the first one to do something. They want to be the second. They don't want, they also don't want to be third, fourth, or fifth, and definitely not last, but there's a fear of doing something too in innovative too quickly. And once we start to see a couple of plans reimbursing digital therapeutics, we're going to start to uh, see the rate of reimbursement increase substantially. Um, I believe that's starting to happen now. Um, I know, you know one of the leaders in the space, my, my colleague, uh, Pat Gleason at Prime Therapeutics, I mean, he's really been leading the charge around how does a PBM view a digital therapeutic, uh, creating a digital 
formulary or just incorporating digital therapeutics on the regular drug formulary and creating the payment plumbing to be as efficient as it is for prescribing a pill. Um, and and there's, there's other folks that are, are doing a really impressive job in, in leading that charge. Uh, so I, th- I think there's just a reluctance to do something new, and we're going to get over that reluctance because the, um, uh, there, there's uh, an ethical obligation to do so. I think we're going to see a regulatory, uh, increasingly fertile regulatory environment. And I think as soon as patients realize that you know, their doctor is saying, hey, there may be an opportunity to address your chronic condition that doesn't have the side effects of taking a pill, or maybe even more efficacious than taking a pill, the consumer demand is going to grow. And that's really the thing just we haven't quite seen because of the lack of um, knowledge amongst consumers that, that these treatment modalities are out there. Andrew, super interesting perspectives. Uh, thank you for sharing that. Shifting gears to my next question, and it addresses one point that uh, you and Chad discussed, which is around really the added differentiation of having physicians and kind of different verticals of decision-making in healthcare beyond the direct clinical practice. You know, one of our mission statements with this podcast is to bring the attention of rising medical students and MDs uh, to the vast areas where they can turbocharge innovation in healthcare and be a part of the decision-making there. And, you know, throughout your career, Andre, you've put on multiple hats. You've worked in the government, you've built your own company, and you are an investor now. And I think you've answered some parts of my question in terms of the added perspective of physicians, be it in reducing the cycle of problem resolution, because a physician can bring a very unique and value additive clinical perspective, or be it the focus on the really efficient translation of evidence into kind of practice and policy. But I think there still remains a gap in signaling. So how can rising medical students and MDs think about signaling this value add to prospective employers? And what should change about kind of the structure of our medical education programs, you know, to help shift the MD degree from a linear career path to more of a platform degree where you have all of these valuable skills, but you can also communicate to future employers that you can bring those value advantages as part of the team. I I think the singular most uh, valuable approach in uh, early career physician um, going beyond just clinical practice and diversifying uh, what they're doing is having the right network and having the right mentors. Um, And uh, my most valuable mentors I've obtained through cold email. I've just reached out to folks that I thought were really impressive and that I might want to be them in 10 years and emailing them. And especially if you're a trainee, like most clinicians will take the time to speak with a trainee, just because you guys know, it's kind of the pay it forward phenomenon. So I encourage trainees listening to this, that if you are really inspired by someone, find their email, uh, ping them and say, hey, can I you know, get some career advice and pick your brain? And that could turn into a mentorship relationship with like quarterly check-ins that could be just a one-time get-to-know-you thing. 
But now that that person will have um, you on their radar and that's how opportunities um, pop up. So to finish us off, how can our audience learn more about what you do and follow the impact that uh, that you're achieving in your career? Um, follow me on Twitter and shoot me a message if I can be helpful. Awesome. Fantastic. Thank you very much. Good to meet you. Right, thank you, Andrew. Alex, that was such a great conversation with Andre. I really, really enjoyed it. There are many takeaways, but I think my main takeaway was his focus, his incessant focus on human-centered design. I, I think it's really inspiring because whether it's for you know clinicians out there, you know consultants, investors, entrepreneurs, it's very important to know who your end consumer is, who exactly you're serving, and that's going to be derived from not only what you believe, but the mission and the values and all those statements you know of your company. But it's very, very important when you're building a product to exactly understand who you're going to service. Because A, as we mentioned during the podcast, it's the right thing to do, the ethical thing to do, and it helps decrease equity, inequity rather. But B, it's also probably the financially savvy thing to do. Because if you're making a product that fits into the you know, workflow of your end consumer's lives, and people's lives are very, very complicated logistically, and people make decisions for a variety of different reasons, then you're just going to create a more compelling product for people to use. And adoption is going to be a lot higher. You know, we talk a lot about clinical workflow in, in the context of innovation because a lot of our consumers are, you know, clinicians within the hospital. Similarly, I think in D2C products, it's very, very important to, to keep in mind who your end consumers are and then do research on them before you create a product. So I really appreciated his point on human-centered design. But that was my takeaway. Over to you, Alex. Thanks, Chad. That's a great point. And thinking about my takeaway, I think I'd like to double down on the point that Andre mentioned as a response to my last question, which is how can uh, medical doctors and medical students you know, think about finding the opportunities outside the beaten path and communicating that they would be uh, valuable uh, team members uh, in non-clinical teams. And I think kind of a lot of elements about finding these opportunities and landing these roles is a people's based process where, you know, it's very important to keep your network updated on the fact that you're searching for opportunities, for example, in venture or kind of in finance or in entrepreneurship, be it whatever discipline that you're interested in. And it's very important to communicate to them in a very simple and understandable manner why you'd be a very valuable add to a team in vertical that you're looking at. And so I really like, for example, the point that Andre highlighted that physicians are really good at, you know, parsing through evidence that relates to healthcare issues and translating that into kind of practical steps or uh, policy steps and kind of action points. And so I think because a lot of the opportunities outside the beaten path, they come in a sporadic fashion rather than a systematic fashion. And so it's actually very important to kind of keep the people in your network just updated on what's your intended trajectory and how you can be a value add there. Because you never know who might ask them about a recommendation for an employee to their fund or to their venture or something else. 
Great. Uh, so join us next episode for a more conversation with amazing physicians who have ventured off the beaten path. And remember to follow us on social media on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at POTBP Podcast and to catch our latest podcasts on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Amazon Music. To get in touch with us, you can always email us at physiciansoffthebeatenpath at gmail.com or visit our website at potbppodcast.com. See you next time.